0: I am recording. Uh, yeah, what, now I'm recording too, and we're off is what I normally start with. So here we are, and we're off.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I changed it for a reason. I am recording. Get it? Like, like I am legend? That was what I was going for, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, recording for elephants.
1: <laughs> Alrighty, well, welcome back, everyone, to another week in a career in film. My name is Zachary D'Antonio. I'm Nick DeRiso. And this week we're covering a guy that uh, you might not know of, but uh, we thought this would be pretty interesting. So we're doing a deep dive today on Francis Lawrence. You might not know of. Isn't that the whole like fucking point of the show? Yeah. Well, that's what we do here on a career in film. Each week, we pick a director who did a movie we really like, and then we do a deep dive on their filmography uh, to see what other gems really like? <laughs> Which uh, of these movies do we really like? Which of these movies do we really like? I have one that I really like, and we're going to argue over it, I'm sure. Um, okay. But yeah, let's talk about Francis Lawrence, because this is a guy that many people don't know, though he is, I would say by all accounts, a very successful, high-profile blockbuster director. Yeah, with no name recognition whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Um, But he's an interesting guy, so uh, we're going to... Let's get into it, shall we? Yeah. So he was actually born March 26th, 1971, in Vienna, Austria. Uh, he moved to California at age four. And while he was in California, he worked as a second assistant camera on one of Nick's favorite movies, Pump Up the Volume, while he was still in college. Party on. That, yeah.
0: Like, you know, that, you could probably learned more on that set than he did in college.
1: Yeah, well, so he, direct, uh, he graduated from Loyola Marymount University, but pretty much immediately he parlayed that Pump Up the Volume gig into directing music videos. And I don't know if there's ever been a... Uh, career of directing music videos as prolific as francis lawrence's
0: yeah he's he's done so many high profile songs and even i'd say notable music videos that it's kind of amazing this dude's like the the like this dude is to music videos what john williams is to scores
1: yeah, I guess we should, just to kind of an oversimplification for our audience members, in case you don't know, directing music videos is often a really good way to parlay yourself into directing feature films, and a lot of directors have gone that route. Uh, most notably, I always think of Spike Jones as a guy who did a lot of very indie music videos and kind of built a name for himself.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, did Michael Bay do a lot of music videos too, or am I making that up? Or was
1: he porn? Did he direct porn? I don't think he directed porn.
0: I might've made that up.
1: I think so. Don't sue
0: me, Michael Bay.
1: I'm sure that Michael Bay has done a music video or two in his life, especially in like the early nineties. I'm sure he did, but a a lot of times it's something that, you know, a, a director will latch onto a band and do a couple different music videos for one notable band. And as they get big, the band also gets big. A lot of times you'll see that narrative, um, Francis Lawrence is totally different. I mean, Francis Lawrence has just directed a music video for, like, so many big pop stars. Not your small indie acts that happen to break big for a little bit. Like, bona fide stars sought him out to direct music videos.
0: So, you know, in terms of Francis Lawrence, like, his first, he got his start. He did, uh, he, he did a Tevin Campbell video and an early Bad Religion video. Then he you know, started getting involved with the Fugees. He did, like... Um, he did Proz's "Ghetto uh, Superstar video featuring Old Dirty Bastard, which is a video I've seen many times. Uh, and that's an interesting thing, too, because there's, there was there's something that I noticed when looking at a lot of the, his filmography. is not uh, It's uh, music videography, videography, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, he did a decent amount of, mu- of music videos that are tied to studio feature films. Um yeah. Ghetto Superstar being an early example because uh that was uh, affiliated with the movie Bullworth, uh, starring Warren Beatty, um, to the point where they use clips of Bullworth in the music video. Um But then like the ne- that same year he also directed Aerosmith's I Don't Wanna Miss a Thing, which is obviously tied to Armageddon. <laughs> so, you know, that that's interesting too. I feel like when it came to like, you know, rubbing shoulders with famous people and, and starting to get, uh, you know, his footing into w- what I assume his his dream was to direct future films because uh, we're about to talk about his film career in a second. Um, he did some of those major ones. Um, just other artists he worked with, uh, you know, going around this time, you've got like Sarah McLachlan, you've got Vanessa Williams, you got Robin, you got Third Eye Blind, he directed like two or three videos for Third Eye Blind, Enrique Iglesias... Lauren Hill. So I believe he's directed individual videos of every member of the Fugees. Um, and then, uh, Destiny's Child, he did Independent Woman Part One. Um, he also did the, I'm like a bird video for Nelly Furtado. Um, he did the warning video for Green Day. And then he also did the video for the song called Warning from Incubus. So he's got both warning videos, completely unrelated songs. Um, uh, he's got a bunch of J-Lo he's done some Janet Jackson uh, he's got more Aerosmith he did, he did Jaded so he did like every song, Like he did one song off of two uh, Aerosmith albums in a row he did The Call by the Backstreet Boys um, he's got a lot of Britney Spears as well where you've got I'm a Slave for You, he also did Circus he did the, the P.O.D. Alive video you know that one
1: I'm just going
0: him. fast yeah. so feel free to jump in whenever you one Zach, I'm sorry. I...
1: <laughs> no, no, this is like your thing. I honestly, the you've hit all the ones that I really wanted to point out, except for um, "Skater Boy" was in there. That was a music video I remember watching a decent amount of times back when Avril Lavigne yeah, was but, still and, in her height of popularity. Yeah, and I'm
0: flying through right now, and I've not even got to that because we still got Shakira's "Whenever, Wherever" and the 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 Will Smith video for Men in Black Two and uh oh and also just
1: like a pill <laughs> rock your body which i mean think about that that was huge justin timberlake stepping out into like his first big thing rock your body that's great
0: yeah well he also did cry me a river right before that too mm-hmm. um and then uh he also did jenny from the block um he did michelle branch's goodbye to you uh he also did uh, one of the least known ok go music videos which is get over it um, which, which, that uh, actually
1: I, is one of my favorite OK Go songs and their music videos. It's one of the last ones, like, before they started doing the OK Go thing, it's just, like, their biggest single that's a normal music video is Get Over It.
0: Well, yeah, and, the, but it, like, you know, they also, like, the whole thing is it's, it's got, like, fast cuts of dad jokes in between them playing music. So yeah. like it's a, it's it goes with like old OK Go where it's sort of a simple concept done very well and he does a very good job directing it I I uh, uh, and then he also did a bunch of black eyed peas he did like let's get it started um, and uh, pump it. Uh, Pussycat Dolls, Buttons, Beyonce's Who Run the World, Girls, uh, Lady Gaga's Bad Romance. Now we're getting into like stuff he did when he became a director of other films as well. But I just kind of wanted to, you know, just do the music video sort of as a separate aside so I don't have to be like, oh, by the way, in between these two movies, he also directed the music video for Britney Spears'
1: Circus. This dude is a very well-respected music video director. (laughs) <laughs> and honestly i do think in hollywood we can kind of discuss this a little bit at the end but i think he's a pretty well respected blockbuster director probably Could within the hollywood so. circles yeah um so let's let's talk about it right before <laughs> i think only a year or two before he did bad romance um he actually directed one of it's a dc superhero film that just everyone forgets about uh that is 2005's constantine and it is one of the reasons why i really wanted to cover francis lawrence and you had actually brought him up to me as like a guy that we could do and I-, I was all over this movie um i remember seeing it when it came out i might have gone to see this in theaters uh mainly because it also starred rachel weiss who i loved coming off of the mummy movies but then it also had constant uh, it had keanu reeves in it so it was a no-brainer i, I was all over this um yeah well, let's
0: uh, yeah. So start us off. Give us a breakdown of uh, of Constantine. the The reason we picked the director.
1: Yeah. So a lot of people are not as familiar with John Constantine. He is technically in that DC superhero canon, but like, he was created by Alan Moore, who's most people know is one of the most famous uh, comic book writers ever. He's probably the most famous comic book writer ever, arguably aside from Stan Lee, um, but. John Constantine was originally a character, just a supporting guy in the famous Alan Moore run of Swamp Thing. And then Hellblazer Comics did a whole comic based off of John Constantine. And his whole thing is that he's a guy who can communicate with half-demons and half-angels. It's a lot of occulty stuff within the DC Universe. And honestly the character has had a decent run all the way um i think starting in the early 90s and continuing on today but yeah so this movie basically takes a couple different elements from major constantine storylines uh basically it's starts off with john constantine is performing an exorcism on a young girl and it turns out that this exorcism is more difficult than the average one and he starts to investigate why the demons are being more bold and gutsy and it turns out that someone has found the spear of destiny which is just a the big macguffin artifact um but they are trying to use it to raise the son of the devil and john constantine has to almost function as like a batman would in like a detective manner trying to figure out what's going on, why the demons are acting like this, who's behind it all, and what their main mission is. And I think it's just a ton of fun. Nick, you did not feel this way. So I would love to tackle Constantine from your perspective of what you saw wrong with it. As someone who's not as familiar with the Constantine character and the world of Constantine, what's going on?
0: Well, yeah, okay, so, no, and I I think that, you know, when it it comes to your personal preferences versus mine, I think that it it makes sense that you would really like this and that I probably wouldn't. Um, I actually find it to be somewhat comparable to uh, Mandy uh, with Nicolas Cage. Um, And I find the movies to be the same, uh, similar in the sense that they are uh, movies that have very strong visuals, uh, stories a bit complex, uh, at least in terms of tone, I think it, it took itself uh, a bit more seriously than I would have liked it to. Um, and I also think, so like the, the biggest thing that really stood out to me, cause like I, I, you know, I, right. I, I'm on board with the demon kill. And I think it took the, the, the script took a little bit too long to get to demon killing for me. Um, and like it was the kind of movie where I, I, I was sitting there a lot and I was like, yeah, I would rather be watching blade right now. Um, so I guess the biggest thing for me was like the story itself, I thought was a bit convoluted. And if you're saying it, you know, it's several of these different John Constantine stories kind of put together. That sort of makes sense to me. I was, I had definitely had trouble following what was supposed to be going on at several points during this. So maybe it's because they're talking about a lot of like demonic lore and that sort of thing. But like, I didn't think the world building was particular. like I thought the world building was, was good, but it was, it was unclear to me where I didn't have anything to latch on to, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Could, could I ask you this? So I, I had given you kind of the archetype is spear of destiny. Someone's trying to bring the son of the devil. Constantine has to figure out who it is and stop him. in that there's a lot of shoe leather with the character of Rachel Weiss, who plays a set of psychic twins one recently commits suicide and the other one is a cop investigating the suicide that she thinks is not a suicide and constantine gets wrapped up in that is that where you kind of i guess the movie lets you down that Storyline because it, it's the beast. Well, I mean, I did get why the fuck well. she
0: was there. Yeah, I mean, it was like, oh, cool. At least there's someone for Constantine to talk to, you know? Uh, mm. Other than other than Shia LaBeouf, but like, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, when it came to her involvement and and why she was there and how it ties into the main crux of the story, I found that to be kind of unclear. And like, eventually, it got there. You know, it's the kind of thing where there's going to be consistent. Reveals throughout the course of a movie. Like, I eventually picked up on what was going on, but I was lost for a large portion of this, yes.
1: Yeah, I I, I totally understand that. And I think it is one of those things where because they are interweaving two different Constantine stories, that's the, even on a rewatch, which I did uh, not too long ago, I I was like, yeah, this is the slow part. I really like Rachel Weisz and I like what she's doing, but I think that, it just drags that overall narrative down and it also she's supposed to be your the audience's way in because she's the newcomer to this all but there's a lot of world building that happens not with her and some that then happens with Shia LaBeouf's character maybe it would have actually helped everything to have a single character who wasn't integral to the plot in the way that Rachel Weiss is at the end being your perspective into the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, if it would have been more of a <clears throat> giving gradual explanations to... Um like Shia LaBeouf throughout the course of the movie, I feel like I would have been a little bit less lost. Now, granted, then I would have had to put up with with Shia LaBeouf at that age, who wasn't isn't my my favorite actor. Uh, I I I think he grew into quite an interesting performer, but uh, child Shia LaBeouf was never never a fave of mine. Um, but like I I don't know, he he does all right. But yeah, I think from that perspective, somebody who is studying what Constantine was doing might be a little bit easier than also trying to figure out what this person's seemingly unrelated plot is and why she's there.
1: Yeah. Cause I would disagree with you. I think there's the world building that's there is good. I, I wish they had more because I think the really interesting parts of this movie are all of that other world where you have the hell's Bible, which is a major plot point, everything involving uh, Jaimon German Hunsu as Papa midnight and his club is all really cool. The weaponry, I mean, the the whole like he builds a dragon fire crucifix shotgun, like all of that stuff I'm, I'm so down for. It's when it gets into the weeds of, you know, the psychic is required to bring the son of the devil back. Did the psychic, that is that Rachel Weiss A or is it B? Did Rachel Weisz A kill herself? That's where I get in the weeds of this is maybe a little too much. So like like when the like when the
0: plot happens
1: <laughs> when the i I call that like I can't totally say B plot but because it wraps into the ending plot but I think yeah that's the B plot
0: I mean that's a factor um I don't know yeah I mean it's you know it's the kind of thing where also I think I've you know I generally have um due to my uh, my, my Catholic schoolboy education I have you know some knowledge of various religious lore and that sort of thing, and a lot of the lore here was my knowledge of that didn't help me. Um, this is all sort of either made up or or deep cuts that I'm not as familiar with. Oh yeah, um, most of
1: this is gobbledygook, but like I love that yeah, kind I, of gobbledygook. That, that,
0: but that's a factor too, and so it's yeah. There, I mean, I don't know. There's, I feel like there's this is a an oddly wordy film. <laughs> what it is
1: yeah because it's not an origin story for John Constantine so they have to like they have to set up the rules of Constantine's world and there's a lot of shoe leather that goes into that where I would say almost every supporting character other than Rachel Weisz is there to deliver some form of critical exposition if not multiple yeah I talk about the supporting cast I do think that's one of the strengths of this movie I think pretty much everyone in it I don't mind young Shia LaBeouf because he's used so infrequently, but I think everyone else is great. you got Jaimon Hounsou. You've got Tilda Swinton. Um, you got Peter Stormare. I can't ever remember the fat guy's name with the shifty eyes from Identity, but I love him. Yeah, Wish no, there was more him.
0: Guy. I always forget his name, too. <laughs> um.
1: and- And Bug Eye glasses guy, like, Constantine has some great side characters where they just got great character actors who look weird.
0: I agree that they were—the actors were all all very solid in what they were. Yet again, I just didn't think their characters on paper were very strong for me. And, like, I was watching some some good performances here or there, but, like, yet again, if I, as a moviegoer, don't have anything to really anchor to and I'm still trying to get to grips of what's going on, I'm not paying as much attention to— you know, the the fun performance so much as trying to grab onto an understanding of plot. Um, So, you know, maybe on a rewatch where I've got a little bit more knowledge of of what's taking place, I might be able to have fun with those performances. But in in terms of an initial viewing, that was stuff
1: that got lost in the shuffle for me. Okay. Well, um, I mentioned the supporting characters. I would like to talk Keanu Reeves because... We, we talked about him a little bit before in our Linklater episode. This is a yeah, movie l- that certainly lives and dies with his performance. And I, I won't say that he's never there for me, but I do think he's hit and miss. Constantine's always supposed to be like a little bit more serious guy, but he definitely does have like a slightly sarcastic edge because he's just more knowledgeable than most worldly beings. I don't think that Keanu was the best choice of actor I think he's fine but I do think that's a weakness of this film
0: Oh, I, th- I, I actually would take it farther than you. Although you're probably not surprised by this, but I, I think that the casting of Keanu Reeves in this movie is is a pretty egregious miscasting for me. Um, uh, you know, I get that like Keanu coming like in this era, right? He's a few years removed from the first Matrix movie. He transitioned from, uh, dude, bro, extraordinaire to to action star, and I think from an action standpoint, he. Handles it well. He's a great body at this point, but when it comes to to handling a character that says lines more than woe in an action movie, I don't think he's there. And also, like I think John Constantine, like at least in this script, could be a lot better served by someone who's playing a likable asshole. And while. Keanu Reeves is a likable dude. He's also pretty far from an asshole, in my opinion, at at most areas of his career. So like a Ryan Reynolds type, which at the time could have been Ryan Reynolds, but like probably not. Like this is maybe a, a couple of years after waiting. Um, so this is before he was really an action star. But that sort of like sarcastically that could have led, you know, that, that could have accented the, the comedic dialogue of this movie. Um, I, I think that that would have behooved the this movie in general. I I don't know if that word choice is right.
1: No, 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 I get you. I don't think he necessarily needs to be a likable asshole, but I think the asshole quality is important to John Constantine, and particularly the backstory that they kind of pasted together for this movie to make it a little bit more palatable to audiences. Like I think you need that edge, and Keanu tries, but I don't think it never gets there. Like I hate to bring up a guy that we just talked about, but uh, Sam Rockwell... Someone who, you know, he generally reserves it only for his real weird indie shit, but, like, someone who's, like, really not a nice person, but is able to deliver deadpan jokes and one-liners and quips might have really helped this. Yeah. Like, you
0: know, I'm also thinking, like, because it comes down to me, like, I was a bit skeptical of the casting of Keanu after the first exorcism scene. Because, like, he comes in... And, like, he, he, he punches the demon in the face and calls the demon an asshole, right? Something like that. Something like that happens. And, I, yeah, I was just like, this, this needs to be somebody where that's funnier. In this particular case, it just, it, he did, he said the line. It just didn't seem like a skill set that he possessed. Like, I don't know if I'd cast um, Keanu Reeves as, as John Constantine now, post-John Wick. Like, I think it just needs a little
1: bit more personality. A little bit more personality, and I think maybe even a little bit more of an edge to him. Uh, I always think about the scene with the electric chair between him and Papa Midnight. I think that's maybe Keanu's strongest scene in this, and he's having to play a couple different levels of the fact that he's dying of cancer, he's still got the mystery and detectives us all, he kind of cares about the girl but doesn't want to get involved in that. I think that's the one time where Keanu kind of comes together fully as the character on the page for me. And the rest of the time he's always missing one of those aspects. And a lot of the time it's that hard edge of, this is a guy who tried to commit suicide, has been to hell multiple times, deals in demons every day and is jaded by it, but also feels that life is unfair. So he's got a chip on his shoulder. All those levels don't really come through. Um, But I feel like we've talked about it a lot. The only other thing I really want to mention is I love the production design. Uh, It's very clear that they're trying to graft off of that, like, late 90s portrayal of L.A. as being just a really dirty city. Uh, It reminds me of, like, uh, Seven, um, a couple of those crime movies like that. And that's the setting, even though they don't necessarily do a lot of, like, sightseeing pointing it out. But it's just got that feel to it. Uh, And I also think the design of Hell is pretty cool. They modeled it off of an atomic bomb and the footage of the immediate post-blast and how like everything vaporizes and is in partial vaporization. I think the hell design is interesting for this. What do you think? Yeah,
0: I well, I, I'll say that, and, and I don't want to get to through lines with the filmmaker too heavily early on, but th- there's one thing that I think there's no question of whatsoever when it comes to Francis Lawrence, and it's that he knows how to... To paint a very unique picture visually. Yeah. His movies look
1: good. They look good and they're identifiable without like an Autorism to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, this is why I yeah. wanted to bring no, this up. I,
0: I can't say, like, the, the visuals in this movie are the standout thing of this movie for me.
1: Specifically for this movie, absolutely. I, I do think. I can't say he has, like, a way with iconography, but there is just something... It's not, like, a mastery of imagery with someone like a Nolan or something, but it's it's there's something there to him.
0: Yeah. It's his finest work since the Get Over It music video from OK Go. Nice. All
1: right, well, after Constantine, moderate success, you know, whatever, uh, the character of Constantine has gone on to more things, and I think this kind of helped keep it going. I-, I also think it maybe just wasn't the right time for this superhero in 2005. Uh, but no. he gets a huge project next. In 2007, he does I Am Legend. Uh, Nick, when was the last yeah. time you saw I Am Legend? Oh,
0: I saw it when it came out on DVD when I worked at Blockbuster. Okay. Uh,
1: do you remember anything that uh, really stuck with you about this movie
0: other than my along with a, a lot of other people in this world very strong opinions about the ending and uh, source material and that sort of thing I've got like that, that that's to me that's the only relevant thing about this movie
1: <laughs> oh sorry I was gonna I was hoping I would lead you down the tangent to talk about the dog um, about what the dog no. I don't remember. What? He has to strangle his own dog. Oh. It, it I forgot about that. It's such a how do I don't remember scene. that? All right. So, uh, I am no, legend. Nope. If you're not familiar or you need a recourser, basically Will Smith plays a virologist question mark. He's some kind of like scientist but also in the army. I'm not really sure, but basically he is the so, last person alive in New York City after a scientific gene manipulation, whatever, a cure for cancer basically turns people into these vampire-like creatures. Yeah, it's like zombie-ish creatures. Yeah, they're like zombies, vampires. There's a little bit of whatever. They are some some otherworldly being from this virus that was supposed to cure cancer and instead has infected and killed most of humanity. Uh, Which, side note,
0: I, 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 like while i will get to the, the 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 ending controversies this is there's going to be a spoiler section for this movie because it needs to be talked about but uh, the other notable thing in terms of the source material with this movie is uh, in the the source material the person's not a virologist it's just a dude and in every iteration of this movie uh, like of the source material to film they've made him a, vi- a virologist for no reason. Like, he's always just like a scientist now. <laughs> oh, I didn't know
1: that. I, I just thought. Yeah, no, the, the original, song. he's not
0: a scientist, for sure. <laughs> okay. Um. But they've done it. They've done adaptations of this a couple times. And yeah, they're, they're always just like, nah, we'll make him a scientist. It'll make it more science
1: <laughs> Just what
0: audiences want.
1: It does kind of help in the whole. Okay, for the movie, he's the last man alive in New York, and it's him and his dog. And he spends his day basically doing enough survival skills to get by, but also he is trying to find a cure for the cure for cancer for the vampire-like creatures. He's trying to solve this problem, and he's doing experiments on rats and trying different formulas and has to at times catch the vampire-like creatures as basically... I can't call them human specimens, but that's what they are. It's interesting viewing this in a post-pandemic, because uh, there are certainly flashbacks to when the virus breaks out that certainly felt a little familiar and sometimes how we were feeling. Like, I heard a bunch of people watching Contagion and uh, the one with the monkey outbreak. Outbreak! Yeah. This is one that does have a little bit of that pandemic e tinge to it which i thought was interesting because i certainly didn't think about that at all until i rewatched it
0: yeah i mean that makes sense for sure uh you know pandemic movies during a pandemic or um you know if people they're not the best means of escapism but they can sort of hit some emotions of what you're feeling
1: so you know there's a there's definitely a time and place for them for sure yeah So I already spoiled this, unfortunately, but uh, his dog gets bitten and he has to kill his dog. And it's a really affecting scene where the dog basically sacrifices himself or herself to save Will Smith. And Will Smith tries to give her the cure and the cure doesn't take. And so he has to strangle her before she fully turns. It's really sad. It's a great piece of acting by Will Smith. Honestly, I would say the whole movie is. I was, especially on this rewatch, surprised at what a layered character he's delivering. And they do a very good job of building, they do a very good job of making the direct connection that the dog is his last tether to his old life and his uh, wife and daughter who are both deceased now. So like, they, they really layer that home hard, and their relationship, I mean, it's the only person that he talks to, and basically taking care of the dog gives him a wonderful, immediate ...set of circumstances that he has to deal with. It's one of the things that, like, keeps him going... ...because he has to food and shelter for the dog... ...and make sure it's got its meals... ...and, you know, he gives the dog baths and protection. So that's, like, it's a big moment for him... ...and the character becomes unhinged afterwards. Aside from that, uh, without going into spoilers... ...I think that the design of the creatures... ...you know, some of the CGI doesn't totally hold up now... ...but I think it's a fine design... I think more so the thing that we want to talk about is the imagery of the post-pandemic New York City, where a lot of things are overgrown, a lot of wreckage and rubble, but you still get the bones of New York City. I think, again, going back to his strengths as a visual filmmaker, and particularly with his setting, it, it's really great. It's like that scene from uh, 28 Days Later, but not little bits of London filmed at 5 in the morning, like. He's running all over an empty New York City, and you believe it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that element is there for sure. And, and you know, I, I mentioned before I'm not a, a big fan of, of movies that are, um, you know, solo ventures of, you know, one character walking around place. Um, I my ADD is too strong. I lose interest too fast. This one did, if I recall, hold my attention throughout most of it, and I think a lot of the the empty New York visuals are a big factor in that for sure. Like I bought into the the world building of the movie. I feel like we're gonna say that for every movie this guy fucking does, but like it's true. Needs to be said. He builds pretty good worlds.
1: So the only other thing I wanted to mention to you, Nick, there is a really heavy Bob Marley motif in this, and I believe it is also in the source material. So I would no. it's laid on a little thick, but I think it's totally applicable. I think it totally works, and it gives a nice flavor to the movie because it is a piece of art that he has a connection with that ties him to his family. So it's fine. I think we should just talk about spoilers because the big controversy with this movie is its ending because there are two different endings and hot take.
0: Well, no, I mean, there, there, there is one ending that got released with the movie. Like the whole thing was they shot the real ending and test audiences were like, I don't like it. And so the studio was like, yep, shoot, shoot a new one. And it kind of goes against the source material, but like, whatever, who gives a shit? And, uh, like Francis Lawrence has come out and said that the new ending sucks. Like <laughs> he was not a fan of the, like he's a, a traditionalist. He liked the, he preferred the original ending.
1: My hot take is I hate both endings. I don't think either does the story and what they're trying to do justice. Okay. To explain both the theatrical ending, uh, whatever after the dog dies he gets in a fight with the vampires and stuff and he's actually rescued by a woman and a small child who also happen to be immune who are trying to travel to the woods of vermont where there is apparently a safe colony of people in the theatrical ending the house gets broken into by the vampire-like creatures they realize that his latest cure is working on one of his vampire human specimens So he gives the lady and her kid the cure and puts them in a crawl space and then basically sacrifices himself and blows himself up along with the rest of the vampires in the house so that they can get away. And the post, or not the post credit, but the ending is the lady and the son, or I don't even think it's the son, the lady and the boy arriving at the colony and in voiceover she's like, he... You know, he was a legend because he found the cure. That's where we get I am legend. That's what everyone hates. The original ending, which is now the alternate ending, which was released, is they've cornered themselves off in the bottom of the lab, and the big bad vampire takes his blood and smears a butterfly in the window for Will Smith to see. Will Smith realizes that the human specimen that he's trying the drugs out on has a butterfly tattoo and that they're in love, and so he gives the specimen, the test subject, back to the vampires, and they leave, and then Will Smith is able to go with the lady and the kid and leave New York and leave the burden of his failures to not find the cure earlier and to seek out a new life. I would argue that both endings suck, because the original ending does not really uh, hammer home the fact that like he's cured it, everyone's going to be fine, and yes, there is a safe colony for us to go to. The theatrical ending is just kind of anticlimactic. I mean, the lead blows himself up in a situation where you don't think he really has to, and everything's wrapped up with a bow a little too neat. It totally abandons what is supposed to be the main theme of the title, I Am Legend. The quote is, I am the dark legend of the new world. It's supposed to be that from the point of view of the vampire-like creatures, he would come along as this otherworldly villain, kidnap and experiment on one of their community members, and then kill them and dump their bodies. I don't think either ending really handles that well.
0: And see, I'm going to disagree with you because I, I think that... the I read that when I when I saw the original like the original ending the non-theatrical cut ending the the impression that I got from it was it showed that the the vampire creatures were sentient and it showed that Will Smith had kidnapped one of their own and was performing medical experiments on them and he hits the realization within himself that in this world in this universe he is not the hero he is the villain and that to me read through perfectly fine in the original i don't think it was a slam dunk i think that you know it could have been a little bit more clear for sure but also the biggest complaint of test audience was that they didn't want will smith to be a villain after investing time in the movie
1: which is i think pretty fucking stupid Uh, yeah i would agree with that it's stupid i think that if and maybe this is just stuff that's on the cutting room floor when they change the ending but if there was a little bit more reinforcement early on of the sentience and will smith getting it wrong there's one scene where he's giving a video diary where he makes an offhanded remark about the behavioral change in the alpha vampire and dismisses it as uh, he exposed himself to sunlight. Maybe it's the lack of food that they're starting to abandon regard for their own safety or whatever. Like, it's a brushed-off moment where he misreads the intention of the Alpha Vampire. Maybe if there were more things that were a little bit more apparent along the way, I would have totally bought that and felt that the ending was a little bit more justified in that. But I kind of am left with, I don't necessarily know if he thinks he's the Dark Legend of the new world I think he just thinks oh they can think and feel a little bit more than I thought well I'm sorry I was just trying to cure you but here's your maybe cured vampire back I'm gonna go on a new adventure and leave New York it's yours now yeah and
0: that's just like that's just not how I read that ending like it's it was a little bit more clear to me personally that uh, you know but yet again it's a moot point because ultimately you know Test audiences watched it and they were like, uh, now nah, the nah, villain, I want, I want hero zombie, not villain zombie killer. Uh, n- make new ending with, with hero man. And the studio just did it. And so, yeah, the ending is just kind of, it takes it from being kind of a thoughtful, interesting, um, viral movie or zombie movie into, you know, just sort of a, a, a zombie movie with a mediocre ending. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think so, it, it, I don't know. It makes it into a zombie movie, like a standard zombie movie. It doesn't elevate it with the perspective shift, and maybe I'm being which I hard think on this
0: it. movie needs based on its budget and size. You know, yeah, it's a PG thirteen zombie movie. It's gonna need a little bit more than just like
1: a big explosion. Yeah. No, you're so, right. I don't know,
0: but yeah, I, I don't know the, the the theatrical ending worked, worked for me fine like for me like the I would give this movie with the the original theatrical the, the original the
1: original ending not the theatrical
0: ending uh, like this movie's a three with it and a two without for me
1: okay I, I kind of land where both are threes I, I just want I want it to be a four based off the ending and I don't think either one does it for me but I think the rest of the movie's good I definitely think if you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while I think it's worth revisiting especially now that we're all post pandemic yeah I'm with you. Cool. So this was a success. I mean, big surprise. It was 2007. Will Smith. Like this made a shit ton of money. Uh, so he takes that and cashes it in and does 2009's Water for Elephants, a movie that Nick yeah. has. I was expecting you to say the Britney
0: opinion. Spears Circus video.
1: Oh yeah. Well, there's some circus in this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Was that a song
1: for this movie?
0: It wasn't. It, can't it would be been. funny if it was, though. It can't have been. <laughs> it
1: cannot have been. That is accurate. All
0: right, Sorry, so, what were you saying before I just started bullshitting?
1: No, you, you don't have, have me bullshit time. There's, <laughs> you have some strong opinions about this movie, much stronger than I have. Uh, t- yeah. I, I want you to take it and tell me why I should watch this movie.
0: Because <laughs> it's Fucking hilarious. No, th- this is... This movie's in the, the... The so bad it's good category for me. For sure. Um, but, like, the thing is... is I don't know. it. It's one of those movies that, like... I, I think it's a lot more fun to describe... Than it is to actually sit through. Um, you know. Uh, but, yeah. So, this movie's... Uh, Titanic at the circus. <laughs> and, like... So this movie opens with the the dude from Parks and Rec not the, the not Adam Scott like the guy who was Adam Scott's character before Adam Scott got on Parks and Rec. He was on like the first 2 seasons. Um uh, What was his fucking name? Brandanowitz. Yeah, Mark Brandanowitz, right. The baby maker's guy. Uh, we we covered him on the baby makers, but my yeah, Mark Brandanowitz, uh, he's like cleaning up his. He's a circus manager, and he's cleaning up his circus for the day, and he finds Hal Holbrook wandering around, in a, uh with a look of senility on his face, and he brings him back, and he's just like, "Hey, are you from the retirement home?" And he's just like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah I ran away," and. They were like, they get to chatting and he's and he's like, it gets revealed that Hal Holbrook used to work for the circus and he brings up the circus uh, that he was a part of and Brandanowitz is just like, that's the biggest circus fire in, uh, you know, world history or whatever. You were involved in that. He goes, let me tell you the story. Boom. Titanic plot device is in place and it tells the story of how Robert Pattinson fell in love with Reese Witherspoon, who's married to Christoph Waltz, uh, and they're on a circus train, and then they become friends with an elephant, and they train the elephant, and there's spoilers I can and will get into, but that's sort of the, the baseline of it. It's a it's a romance with a love triangle uh, on a, at the circus which is a movie I don't know I mean I I don't know if people asked for this was this a thing people wanted to see I think I know it's based on a book I think
1: it is a formula particularly effective for romance stories especially so if you're going to set something a period romance movie you have one of the surviving characters set it up Sometimes you reveal who exactly they are in the story. Sometimes you don't. But, like, you get the whole main plot through flashback. I think that's pretty standard. You've got that in, I think, of The Notebook. I think of Titanic.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean I'm sure the plot device is common, for sure. Uh, the, the the other thing that I find utterly hilarious about the, the plot device in this particular case is it it it's ignored until the movie's about to be over, and you just totally fucking forget that it's Hal Holbrook telling this story to Mark Brandanowitz. Like, I, like I could get more into it when we get to the ending. I just needed to set that up, right? Yeah,
1: it doesn't like, have, like, the cutbacks. In terms like, of the, the movie cutbacks. itself. Wait, what? Like, am I correct in saying it, it doesn't have the cutbacks? Like, you're not constantly checking in with Bill You never talk the to boat. Hal
0: Holbrook until this movie is about to be over.
1: Yeah like
0: which is fine but it's weird because like you forget that that's the plot device because you just sort of get wrapped up in the world of the movie like in titanic they check in every now and then and the bearded guy says fuck and bill paxton's like tell me more and then they go back to titanic right like it's jumping back and forth in this case they got holbrook and and they shot for a day and it's at the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie to bookend it but, like, beyond that, there's, you know, it, it's not not a thing. They don't even bring him in for any narration. It never happened.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a good crutch for a, a romance story. I think we should also mention this cast is interesting. Just before we get into, like, the spoilers of the plot and stuff, this is Christoph Waltz coming off of his Breakout in Inglorious Bastards, where he had, like, a run of, like, five or six big-budget Hollywood movies, and this was his, like only foray into romance I think I mean he's playing the asshole character but like he, he was huge at the time you got Robert Pattinson who's trying to figure out his post Twilight demeanor I think Twilight movies are still going on right uh, I w- yeah I would say in the in this time period I believe so yeah and Reese Witherspoon is always Reese Witherspoon I mean I, I don't really have anything to say about her like she'll always be a movie star to me but you've got those two guys who are maybe these are the two next big things.
0: Oh, uh, so I to get into the you know the the performances because I think that's kind of, sort of what what hinges this movie. And like for me, when it comes to the the strengths of this movie, uh, a lot of that was Christoph Waltz for me. Um, mm-hmm. I thought his performance in this movie was excellent, I think the other two were not as good but (laughs) Christoph Waltz and you know, like obviously Christoph Waltz has his thing and he does his thing well in, in whatever he does. But one thing that I think Christoph Waltz is a master of, and he does an excellent job in this movie doing it is like, he does a good job of coding what he is actually feeling at any given time where you as an audience member and whoever sharing a scene with him can't tell if the scene's going to end in a hug or a punch to the mouth. And it, when it when it's a character like this, especially in a love story where the character is designed to be relatively threatening, I thought it there were there were multiple times where I was very invested in what in what was going on because of Walt's performance.
1: Awesome. Um, I wasn't because I I thought this movie was boring, but that's me. Yeah.
0: Um. I wish I had well, more and to that's the, give
1: you than that. <laughs> I well, really don't. That's the don't. other
0: side of that coin, right? Because, like, yeah. Pattinson and Witherspoon, neither of which I would describe as as bad actors by any means. You know, I've seen
1: Pattinson do do excellent work in good time. and I, I would say that Pattinson is generally the only time I find him to be bad is when he has to do i don't want to say love scenes but like when he is just having to have a romance plot like i think he is an actor needs other things to play and this movie doesn't give him that because it's moulin rouge it's a guy who's just in love yeah, yeah. well and he likes he, elephants he's gotta have something more i mean he's got elephants do you not care yeah. about
0: elephants he cares about elephants
1: no, and honestly, I also thought this was a dumb title. Because Water for Elephants, I just thought about Water for Chocolate, which is another like very famous romance story. I was like, what a weird thing to replace chocolate with elephants. Those two things are not similar. But there you go. Well, so... It's a fucking circus, I, guess the po- I get the, elephants.
0: The, <laughs> the point I wanted to get at with uh, with Witherspoon and Pattinson, though, is like, obviously, I like, I like Pattinson... Uh, I particularly like his performance in Good Time. I've seen him in a couple things. I think he's pretty good. Um, Witherspoon's obviously got a a very robust career where she's done a lot of really good things. The thing that holds back this for me was not necessarily like anything to do with their individual performances, but like when it comes down to it, I just didn't think the two of them had any chemistry whatsoever. And so like for a romance movie, that's
1: not good. And also... uh so I know we've talked about the parallels to Titanic. It's something else I should say. I, I haven't seen the movie Pompeii in a while, and I remember it being pretty bad, but I feel like it had this aspect too. If you're going to set the story up with, you know, oh, it was a love story that happened during this big disaster, and it's also the time, it, the timelines are going to run congruent to that, the brilliant thing that Titanic does is it invests so much time right up front explaining the disaster how it happened, what's happening at every second, so your characters can go through this disaster for a long period of time. The stakes can continually get raised, but you as an audience member always know what's going on. This movie doesn't do any of that because it's just, oh, that was the biggest fire and blah, blah, blah that we've ever seen. But it's not like someone's talking you through like how it all happened, what's going on. It, it, well, it, it, go for it. The movie, The
0: movie does explain how it happened. Uh, at at the same time we we need to get to spoilers to do that is there any other pre-spoiler things that need to be addressed
1: no we should talk about this
0: yeah so the ending of the movie if you don't want to hear it fast forward I don't know five minutes or whatever Yeah. But so first off, it's weird that he says circus fire in the opening scene because there isn't one in this. There's a stampede. All of the animals get released and it's because of their romance. It's adjacent to their romance. Like the, the, the indication is this this giant circus accident is because of the romance that's taking place. So, like, it does set it up that way. Now, granted, it's not real. Like, Titanic! The Titanic is a very well-documented event that took place. This circus accident's just fiction, right? So, it would be in bad taste if Jack and Rose, like, broke the Titanic. Well, and and
1: that's what what I'm saying is, like, (laughs) it's different between the timelines running concurrent and them converging. And the relationship is... The direct cause of the disaster event versus the relationship having to, and from a tension standpoint, survive the disaster event. I find one inherently more interesting.
0: While we're in the land of spoilers, though, more yeah. importantly, the Christoph Waltz's character dies because the elephant stabs him. Yeah, I was fine with that. I'm not kidding. That's how they kill that character.
1: It just end.
0: <laughs> the elephant stabs him. <laughs> and it's even and apparently it's in the book. I had I was telling uh Cassie, who guessed it on a podcast that may be released at some point. Um and I was talking with her about this movie and I was like, So did like did the elephant stabbing the villain happen in the fucking book? And she's like, I don't think so and then she looked it up and no, it does. Like the elephant fucking stabs him. In the book, too. He grabs a knife in the trunk, stabs the dude.
1: That's fucking silly.
0: <laughs> That's <Yeah>. hilarious.
1: <laughs> Again, it's another reason where I'm just kind of like, eh, on this movie. I Like, if you kind love romance movies... <laughs> if you like romance movies, I would say check it out. But, like, nothing in this does it for me aside from a... It's a romance movie with then a weak romance. Uh Right, no,
0: and that's why I think it fails as a movie. Also, final side note, uh, when, it, when it finally cuts back to the plot device, Brandanowicz is sitting there with Hal Holbrook and he's like, and Holbrook's like, so yeah, anyway, we left the circus, and got married and had a family, but now she's dead, so uh, can I join the circus again? And Brandanowicz is like, yeah, I guess. You're kind of old, though. And Holbrook's like, yeah, I know, it'll be all right. I'm like, yeah, okay, and it ends. <laughs> so like b- between the the elephant stabbing Christoph Waltz and the, the the very weird and unnecessary plot device, like yes, you could say common in the genre, but like it didn't add anything to this. You didn't need it. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I yeah, I think it's kind of a special bad movie for me. I do think it's still bad enough where I'd give it a a, a failing score. It's not going to get, like, uh, you know, bonus points like I'd give a movie like The Room. But I do look back on this movie fondly because I just, I, I, I remember being like, wow, this was weird.
1: Well, he keeps up his string of being a director who only works on adapted scripts from books. And he is hired to continue the Hunger Games franchise. So in 2013, he directs the second Hunger Games movie, Catching Fire. I, how do you want to tackle these? Are we
0: like, how are we doing this? You're the you're more of the Hunger Games expert. I watched all four Hunger Games movies for the first time for this recording. So,
1: yeah, I think this. I got is one fresh of those...
0: thoughts on all of them. But like, you got to yeah. run this show. I can't run this show.
1: All right, dear listener, we can't talk about the second, third, and fourth Hunger Games movie without talking about the first one. Uh, I really like the first Hunger Games movie. I think that as a standalone movie, it works very well. The fact that you know that there are more movies coming, great. But I think that as a a singular piece of film, it works. I can sit and watch the first Hunger Games movie and then not think that I have to go catch up with the other ones for a couple months. Uh, I forget who directed the first one, but I think it's complementingly directed. I think it, uh, you know, that person has already set the framework for what the world looks like and what the different worlds look like. I think it's an effective action movie. I think it, for the most part, builds its three main characters well. Uh, The Liam Hemsworth guy always gets the short grift, but I'm pretty sure he got the short grift in the book anyway, so, like, it's fine. And it's a fine movie. I like it. Just the first Hunger Games movie, Nick. What are your thoughts? Because you watched it for the first time this week. Yeah, yeah,
0: no. Um, uh, I thought the first Hunger Games movie was fine. It's battle royale for kids. I do think that. Uh, yeah, I guess the biggest thing this movie was criticized for when it came out was the uh, sort of aggressive shaky cam on the battle scenes. Um, I agree, uh, but also you know you got to maintain your PG thirteen rating somehow. So you know, let's have it look like, fucking weird whenever
1: the,
0: the there's an action scene.
1: That's fine. Uh, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, I, I think it's a successful book, a successful movie. I mean, this was in that, towards the beginning of the wave of the young adult post-apocalyptic novels and films that there were, like, five years there where we just had, like, seven of them. Why are they called The Hunger Games? They never told me that. That's a good point. I actually don't remember. <laughs>
0: like, the I like I asked Kelly about it, my girlfriend, and she was just like, it's in the books. And I'm like, that's great. It would have been cool if they would have told me in the movie. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, that's one thing with book to film adaptations. Like, there's always certain things. And like, if I'm going to give one criticism of the Hunger Games universe is like, you know, you've got you know, examples of this type of movie that that exists already, right? Like, obviously, I'm going to say Battle Royale, and I, I my Battle Royale comparisons are going to continue through this whole fucking series, so, like, just bear with me there. But the, at the same time, like, with Battle Royale, I understood the circumstances of why this had to happen. That's something
1: that in the Hunger Games film series I never totally got, other than, like,
0: oh. government
1: is corrupt. Oh, okay, okay, I can explain that. So I I don't know why specifically they are called the Hunger Games, but the reason behind the games themselves is explained, I think in the first movie, in a little bit of exposition dump, but in, in the books it is made very clear that there was a rebellion against the Capitol. The Capitol won and as a sort of yearly penance and way of keeping their thumb on all of the different districts, this was their way of asserting their dominance every year. Because you lost, every year we're going to take two of your kids and make them fight for our enjoyment. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, that's. I mean, that's not sustainable. Glad that's, that uh, they rebel against I, it. I
1: hate to jump too far ahead, but that's why in the fourth one... They bring it up again as like a a, a form of punishment. Um, so so that is. You know, we'll get there when
0: thing. we get there. You know, let's crawl yeah. before we walk here. You know.
1: But yeah, the first one's great. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence. This pretty much helped launch her career to the super status that it was at for a while. And I think she's really good as this lead. Um, I yeah, also think as sure. far as we're talking about three books that are adapted into four films. My memory is that the first one is the closest translation in terms of adapting plot for plot and character for character. I believe the first one is the most loyal to the books.
0: I mean, that would, yeah, I mean, that checks out. I can't um, say because obviously I've never read them.
1: But yeah, Francis Lawrence did not direct the first one. He directed two, three, and four. So let's talk about two, which is Catching Fire, which was actually my favorite book out of the series. It picks up right where the first one left off. Basically, the cast of characters are all there. And we're pretty much off to the races as soon as the movie picks up. Which is also something I love when sequels do. And it wastes no time in saying that, you know, this is a super special Hunger Games. And that's why our characters are having to go back into the uh, arena, back into the Hunger Games. In the book, it spells it out that the quarter quell is something that happens every 25 years but the capital specifically like makes up whatever the quarter quell is and use it as a tool to basically keep rebellious thoughts in check and that's why this one is we're going to be choosing from the previous winners of the hunger games that's a deliberate act to get katniss in the arena to try and kill her yeah the movie was clear on that too for the record okay But this time, you've got the psychological effects of the games that are constantly weighing on Katniss and on Peeta Malark, who's the boy from that district who was with her in the last movie. Um, I think that both of them have very believable trauma that is very present immediately and in every scene in this one. And it really is just good writing that you can see how their behavior is affected by it. Um, This movie also adds in a new game designer in the Capitol, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Who is a fantastic addition because, especially at the beginning, you don't know how slimy he is, whether he's really a good guy or a bad guy, whose side he's on. I think he's great in this.
0: I can't agree with that. Like, I mean, I think he's great because he's always great, but I, I personally, I don't think Philip Seymour Hoffman had enough to do in any of the movies.
1: Well. I, I could say that it never has too much to do because he's so good, but I think he helps so much to the political overplot in this movie. So if you're not familiar with The Hunger Games, there are 12 districts, two kids from each district. This time, all of the champions or winners of The Hunger Games from each district are coming back and are forced to go into this fight-to-the-death arena again. Philip Seymour Hoffman is there to basically help you always check in with the temperature of the different districts, the different champions, and the overlords in the capital who are the big bad guys. And I, th- it's a functional role that I think Philip Seymour Hoffman brings a lot to. And with you know, with a Wes Bentley who was this role of the game maker in the first one, I, I think. You'd be a lot more lost.
0: I mean, yeah, I don't know. I for for me, it's just like I think it's agree to disagree. Um, I just don't like on paper. It's just there's not much there. And I mean, I think he always brings a lot to whatever he has to do. But like, I feel like you could have replaced Philip Seymour Hoffman with with Wes Bentley, and I don't think the movie would have suffered particularly. Like, I I, I think that it, it's just it, the it's just a character that's not super well developed there's not that much there and while you know you can bring interesting undertones to the the, the base level character you're given like, I, I I didn't come out of this movie thinking about the Philip Seymour Hoffman in any way
1: okay oh yeah he worked better for me I, I thought he was a great ad.
0: Like, I love it when you add Philip Seymour Hoffman to something. Don't get me wrong. It's just, like, it reminded me of, like, you know how, like, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was the coach in Moneyball? And it's, like, you could have made the coach anybody in Moneyball. Philip Seymour Hoffman was barely in that fucking movie, you know? (laughs) Like, it's, like, I guess you can get Philip Seymour Hoffman if you want to. Um, it's cool seeing him. Nice to see you, bud. But, like, it was, I don't know. I feel like late in his career, they were, like, he would just get a call and be like, hey, we need you for this thing. And he'd be like, yeah, all
1: right, whatever. (laughs) Oh, this is one for them, for sure. It ended up being three for them, but whatever. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, our characters, I think it does a good job of. Uh, in the first movie, they really do a lot of shoe leather with the different districts and what the. I guess, it, I hate to say it, but what the essential resource that each district brings. Like, there's a district that just does aquaculture, and so they're fishermen by just a community. And there's one that, uh, is in charge of the power grid. So they're really good with electricity. And like, that's stuff is all really referenced and layered in the first one. This one is catching you up with the different victors from each district. Um, because it's not their attributes of their district, but them themselves that matter more. So you've got the additions of, is it Jenna Malone? Jenna Maloney? No. Yeah. Jenna Malone gets in there. Um, you got the guy, who's a guy Finnick Finnick yeah I forget he's an actor that tried to be a guy they tried to make him into something um you've got uh Westworld is it the is the black guy yeah yeah, Westworld Uh, he lives in my neighborhood are you serious yeah
0: he's like he's like a local dude
1: I'm looking his name up now because he's a fantastic I don't know his name (laughs) and I want to shout it out Oh, yeah. Toby Jones is in there. I always forget that he's in the second one. Toby
0: Jones is in the first one, too. Uh, which also, I want to just uh, side note, I love Stanley Tucci in, in this series. And I love Woody Harrelson in this series. Those are two actors that are they're in the series as a whole, but like I'm just a big
1: fan of both of the, them and the performances they give in this. Actor's name is Jeffrey Wright. He's character Wright, yeah. actor. Giant arc on Westworld. Uh, Jeffrey Wright's great, but like Jeffrey Wright comes from the electricity district, and that's why he's so good with the codes and they have the electricity plan Finnick is from the fisherman district that's why he has the trident as his weapon so little things like that are hammered home a lot more in the first one than in this one, because this one, it's the people that matter, because everyone's pissed that they survived this incredibly traumatic, bloody battle royale, and now they have to go back into it with people well, and I will say, a like, lot of them have relationships they've become friends from being survivors of this
0: like i will say like the first movie uh, i was aware of the few characters the movie really gives me but i like when it came to the the districts like i think they give a decent enough explanation of different areas and and that sort of thing uh, but it was pretty minimal and it didn't give me a lot of connection to the various characters throughout the movie Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, they give you a lot stronger character intros and people that are a lot more identifiable. So that's a reason that I heavily preferred this movie to the first one.
1: Well, yeah, um, the first one they're just was, identified as like what their district does, not who they are. And this one, yeah, is and it's sort
0: of—I'll say it's sort of in passing. Like it's—it's it's the kind of thing where it didn't particularly stick with me because I, I wasn't looking at the the average person and being like, "Oh, you're from District Seven. That's the." butterfly district or whatever. Like that wasn't a thing for me. Like also Mm -hmm. in the first movie, you know, since we're pretty much in spoiler land at this point, anyway, the first movie, like half the fucking people get killed in the first two seconds. So it's like, you know, it it, it mostly doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. You're really only following Katniss and PETA. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You're following Katniss and PETA. And then there's the two, there's the four kids from the rich people district. And then, uh, there's the, the two African-Americans, um, from the that from their district. Rue. Um yeah, Rue and uh Rue's brother. Um from district 11. But that's really I mean like, you know, so you're looking at like six characters and like on, on top of the leads and like they're not even particularly well developed. It's just you kind of understand where they're from. Um the, yeah, the the second movie there's a lot more identifiable characters even where you get down to like um, you know, there's characters that are experts at hiding, and they pop up and you know, you've still got the the general characters from the first two districts that are just older in this one. um, but like there's a decent, I would say there's a lot more recognizability from the rest of the cast, and that that gave me a better connection to this this movie, yeah. which I think I don't think is necessarily anything that uh, that uh, Francis Lawrence did in particular. I think the script did it, but like, Francis Lawrence fixed the fucking shaky cam during the fight scene, so like he, he wins in my book.
1: Yeah, and we should talk about the Hunger Games themselves because we get the games in this one. I think the game design, you spend less time in the game because there's more shoe leather setting up these good characters, but the time you spend with them, I think the games are cooler and the game design. We talked about how uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the game maker, the game designer. I, I think that the arena that they battle in instead of it just kind of being an arena with like some twists and turns in it, the fact that it's this weird clock design segmented thing where in each different area they have to overcome a different torture device. That's fun. Yeah, no, I mean, I enjoyed it. I actually,
0: uh, for the record, I do believe the amount of time they spend in the games in the first two movies is pretty comparable. Oh, okay. In the first movie, there's a lot more training setup, which is there is not nearly as much in the second. Yeah. And both movies are, like,
1: two and a half hours, so. It's... Okay. Well, yeah. So I want to talk about the game design is cooler and stuff because what you've gotten is the first movie, you're seeing the arena and the games and the setup to it and everything like that. You get that again in this movie, but you're now getting the flavors of the The larger world in context. You're getting the political sides around the games, the first one Katniss is very Katniss and Peeta win they are very defiant of the capital it starts to spark whispers and talks and this one picks up with you guys are the champions the last one you're going to do whatever the fuck we say because we want to squash these whispers and these talks and then they get sucked back into the games and now we're getting the larger picture of maybe there's something bigger here stirring and this one ends with a giant cliffhanger that there is a rebellion going on and they basically like break into the arena to bust them out so they don't have to all kill each other down to the last person. And the movie just ends with Katniss waking up in the rumored destroyed District 13. And that's it.
0: Yeah. Um. It's cliffhanger I and mean that doesn't there. bother. Notably, me. PETA is not with them.
1: Uh, yeah, PETA's not with them. But um well at, as far as cliffhanger that's also, go, it's a pretty stark cliffhanger ending but it never bothers me too much like some of like some book adaptations do like it's much more stark than like a Harry Potter or a, a Lord of the Rings or some of those other trilogies like this is a true cliffhanger ending
0: yeah i mean in the sense that you don't get you don't get necessarily closure on the the situation of the The world, there's, I mean, I do think, I mean, like, there's a clear, I think there's a clear ending to the games in the sense that all villainous parties are eliminated, so, like, I mean, it's, there's a cliffhanger beyond that, but also, I don't find it to be particularly unsatisfying.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to make the same point, that, like, it's a satisfying cliffhanger.
0: Yeah, like, the movie still has an ending pre-cliffhanger, it's almost like the cliffhanger is an add-on to it. Yeah, sounds good. And that is also the moment where the movie transitions from being a battle Royale battle Royale clone in the first two movies to being a battle Royale two clone in the second, in the third and fourth movie,
1: which is inherently less interesting. Uh, Yeah. It's a lot less interesting. So uh, the second one's a success. People love it. They say, give me more. All right, cool. So we're going to break the third book up into two different films. Something that was and that always sucks. That's That's always
0: a bad move. From for in terms of like it's a good move in terms of money. It's a bad move in terms of creating good film.
1: (laughs) Um, so I want to talk starting off with Mockingjay Part One and Two. I have to mention I think that the Hunger Games trilogy is a pretty good young adult novel. Like I read it probably right after the first one came out. So I would have been like 21, 20, no, 23. And I was like, yeah, these are fine books. I particularly really liked the first one. I loved the second one. I think the third one's a giant pile of dog shit. I think (laughs) you have a character that you've, in Katniss, that you've come to love. She is strong, resourceful, adaptable. She clearly has stakes worth fighting for and her beliefs and morals, and she sticks by them. And the third movie just doesn't, and the third book just doesn't know what to fucking do with her outside of the games. And outside of the tension leading up to a rebellion. So, end of the second movie, you got that cliffhanger. It turns out in the third movie, boom, we are in the rumored-to-be-deserted-and-dead-and-bombed-out District 13. And it is, in fact, a thriving underground civilization preparing for rebellion against the capital and they see Katniss as the face of the rebellion. She is the spark, the inspiration, and they want to get her out of the games so they can use her to unite the districts against the capital. And it turns out that this movie, particularly Mark and Part 1, is just a movie about trying to make a propaganda film. And that's super boring compared to two battle royales that came before it.
0: Well, right. It's you, know, it's you take the Battle Royale concept, you remove the Battle Royale, and it's like, well, what do you got?
1: Yeah. The status quo in this movie never really changes. Katniss has very little agency as a character. And really, it's just a bunch of people trying to figure out how to harness her natural talents. But they're harnessing her natural talents not for the Rebellion. It's specifically for making propaganda for the Rebellion. And it sucks. It's, uh, it's super melodramatic. It's really slow paced. Like there's tons of dead air in this fucking movie. We've separated Peta. Peta is stuck in the capital, so she's stuck with her other love interest, who's played by Liam Hemsworth, who's just a a a wet beige rag of a human being and a character in this movie. He he's got nothing. Um. And you're supposed to have like a love triangle. Thing, and I'm always like, no, this guy sucks. There's no way you're going to end up with him. <sighs> it's also an ugly-looking movie. Like, the first two are, because we're in the capital and because we're in the arena, are incredibly vibrant. And there's lots of stuff going on. This film, most of it takes place in either rubble or a gray underground bunker. So it's visually unappealing for its very long, boring runtime. I can't say enough bad things about the third and fourth movie anything based off of mocking jay nick as a newcomer yes this is a stark difference from the first two big tonal shift we've said that the second one is our favorite what did you get from the third and fourth one particularly the third one
0: well so that's it's interesting the the (laughs) because i am probably equally hard on the third one for sure Um, the third one is just like, it doesn't, it's set up for the fourth one, but I don't even think it's set up the fourth one really fucking needs. Um, it's, I agree that it, it looks pretty gross. They have everyone wearing these like gray jumpsuits. And so it's like people wearing like ugly gray jumpsuits, either underground or in rubble. I agree with the melodrama, the, the love triangles whatever but at least you know it's uh, no I don't have anything positive to say there um I think I still think Jennifer Lawrence is doing a pretty good job all things considered and honestly my appreciation for her character if there's anything that I like give the movie a, a, a pass on is that um, cause like, I, uh, I was curious to where they were going to take it after the, after the Hunger Games. Right. And I was just like, and I got, you know, about halfway through it and I turned to Kelly and I was just like, so the Hunger Games isn't coming back, is it? And she's like, no. And I'm like, that sucks. And <laughs> that's, that's where I was at with the, uh, with the third one. And then, you know, it, yeah, in terms of overall action, it's, you know, it's the shortest movie because it's the least for it to do. But, like, apart from a couple good trailer scenes with some troop rallying, you know, bullshit,
1: like, nah,
0: this this was absence of anything, really.
1: Well, yeah, because, again, you say, like, a couple good trailer moments. The whole movie is about trying to make a trailer and trying to capture Katniss's natural energy and charisma and her valiancy. Is that the correct word? Yeah, sure. Basically, it's trying to capture that on film so they can get the rebellion going. But technically, the rebellion's already started at the end of 2 when they break them out of the Hunger Games. Yeah. And it's going the whole time through this movie. So it's like... There's so little... Very little stakes and very little going on. Like, if you're going to do this big, overarching political narrative about what goes on behind these torturous games that are cruel and the battle between the people who are oppressed and the overlords. There's very little of that in this movie, even though it's framed as like the rebellion. It's right. It's really not when it
0: happens. I actually think it looks pretty good. It's just, it's usually pretty short. And yet again, I think they're sort of hampered by the young adult nature of it. Right? Like, um, you know, you can't have
1: brutal, bloody battle scenes in a in a, a family film, you know. Um, but it's not like there's a lot of but, brutal, bloody battle scenes in this one either. I mean, a lot of that happens in the second one, is where you get well, like, you footage of you, you cannot the battle.
0: You cannot have it, right? Well, in this one, you know, they, they blow up the dam in this one, and um, they. uh there's the ones where they jump up to the trees and then they say the Cadmus quote and blow everybody up. Isn't like
1: Yeah. There's a couple that scenes
0: that, that look pretty good, you know? It's like at the same time it's you know, these are these are snippets, these are vignettes, they're for they're for a trailer in terms of actual like content that gets me going in this movie it, it doesn't it, it, it it's barely existent but when it happens it's you know it, he does a good job with that i think he's just more hampered by the fact that you know you had to break a, a, a book that probably probably the most lacking in in entertaining content and had to put it into two fucking movies
1: yeah i agree with you um so the only other, like, big plot thing of note in this movie is that Pita has been held by the Capitol, and they're using him as, like, their propaganda agent. And at the end of this movie, they go into the Capitol and steal PETA and uh, Jenna Malone and the other people who they didn't get out of the Hunger Games at the end of the second movie. That's, like, the the big shift, and that's the cliffhanger that they leave us on in this one, is that PETA's back, but PETA hates Katniss now, because he's been brainwashed.
0: Yeah, which, like, I found one of the funnier things in the third movie was how much so many of these rebels would watch PETA in the propaganda film and not, like, understand that he's clearly brainwashed. You know, because it, it was always a crowd, just like, hey! They said, he said, we're, we're bad, but we're good and they're bad. it's like, well, like, clearly this dude's head's not together. Like, come on. Yeah, <laughs> The masses are dumb. That's one of the biggest things that the Hunger Games taught me. <laughs> just, just so, people are fucking stupid.
1: Yeah. I just, uh, I think that the third one, particularly Mockingjay part one is a a, a real mess and it's the, it's the shortest runtime, but I think it's the sloggiest movie to get through in this four-movie series. Yeah. Mockingjay but Part I'll 2. But say,
0: I'll say or- this. I liked the fourth one. I mean, like, obviously I didn't like it as much as the first two movies, but, like, I thought it was an improvement on the previous one, and I would even argue it's a passable movie.
1: I don't totally get there, but I do want to talk about it. I, I think it's a step up from Mockingjay Part 1. Mm-hmm we'll get into it um so mocking Part bar two is philip seymour hoffman's last role he died while they were filming so there's uh like i think one or two scenes where they had to write his character out or around it um yeah no I, that's
0: pretty it's pretty obvious to be honest it's
1: pretty obvious but i also don't know if it totally hampers the it kind of hampers the movie um I mean, I didn't yet again. I
0: still just didn't think his character was a particularly important character in these films, so it wasn't a big deal. But there's just a lot of there were several scenes where I'm like, Philip Seymour Hoffman would have been there if it weren't for him not being there. And then like, there's a scene where he writes a letter instead of having the scene. You know, like it was clear that like they didn't get to too much filming.
1: In uh, the books, it's a little bit more apparent that like he is. I hesitate to use the word conniving, but he is always looking for his self-advancement, and at the end of it, he becomes the leader of the new society. I think it's more apparent that he is pulling some strings here and there for his own advancement, and also just because he doesn't like the character that is... um, Yeah, coin. That's her name, Coin. Uh, played by.
0: Her Julianne name is Coin. I don't know why. I found that character name to be hilarious. I don't know. I have no idea why.
1: <laughs> but yeah, Coin is the leader of the rebellion, played by Julianne Moore, who's been in District Thirteen for years and is. It turns out not a nice person. So. Like, like this,
0: would you would you vote for someone with
1: the last name Coin? I mean, this is America. We. We we voted for dumber names. We have I don't two know. President I, I, Bushes.
0: I probably I, pro- I probably I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I'd vote for the coin. I think that's that's you know why you got to take power your own way. Anyway, uh,
1: <laughs> so part of the movie is Peta's back, and Katniss feels very responsible for Peta and an emotional connection to Peta, and Peta has been brainwashed, so they're trying to unbrainwash him. But it turns out that the Capitol let him go so he could kill Katniss as a torture to Katniss. And so part of the movie is the Pita-Gale dynamic, both fighting over Katniss and Katniss having to care about both and not really caring about either. And then this one brings in a lot more action than part one because you've got them storming the capital. The capital has been isolated and finally the rebellion is taking full force. One of the things that yeah, irks me about this movie it. though you have the goal but it's a little jarring so the action in the hunger games and catching fire you know they're in the battle royale it's all you know katniss is uh, an archer bow and arrows it's very symbolic it's iconography that helped her it's swords pita's whole thing is he's really strong so he's just like throws rocks and shit in the books um the addition of gatling guns, I think, kills some of the aesthetics of the first two. Uh, I don't sure. specifically remember the gatling guns being in the book. The gatling guns are supposed to be like, and and there are different versions of this, but traps set by the Capitol, by their game makers, like the torturous devices that ha- exist within the Hunger Games, in in the arena, they're supposed to basically be booby trapping the Capitol to kill a bunch of the rebellers with these torturous devices and the gatling gun is just one where i don't specifically remember it from the books but even if it's in there it kind of kills their very cruel aesthetic the other notable one is yeah. the square that holds up and then the like the tar that rises and if you get stuck in the tar it triggers another thing where it's a bunch of wires that slice you like that's the kind of shit that i want the capital be doing they psychologically torture They create mutant beasts. They have, you know, different poisonous gases and crazy shit like that. They make, you know, blood rain happen. Gatling guns feels lazy. And honestly, I think it's one of the biggest things that takes me out because now you have armed troops and this is no longer like our, our protagonist continues to have a bow and arrow in a world with bullets. I think it's a mistake.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see what you're saying there. It didn't bother me as much, and I think that the, you know, the, I thought the Tar stuff was pretty good. Uh, I do think that the, you know, they do hit some of the, the creatures when you get those, like, zombie things in the sewer scenes, you know, that sort of chase and fight scene there did it for me. And, like, yeah, there's more gun-related stuff for sure. Um, but I don't know. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm... I'm okay with it I really the big thing that I needed in this was the goal and that's something that the the third movie didn't have and this gave it to me so I was a little bit more uh, you know forgiving of um, you know aesthetic issues like that but I get what you're saying
1: I get you it certainly helps um, this one also I mean the stakes are raised we have multiple characters that die off I. Uh, it's a good thing but it also makes for like a very the depressing Games, you young know? adult film. But more well, more characters that we've invested more time in die off. Like, I mean, when Finnick dies, it's no surprise, because in a world full of Gatling guns, the man is carrying a trident. Yeah, but he got—he I mean, he gets killed by monsters, so... Yeah, which I think in the books, those monsters are supposed to be like the hellhounds from the first one, not some zombie creatures. I could be wrong, but I thought I had remembered it like that, where the hellhounds are... I
0: assumed he I assume it was just the I Am Legend things, but in this world, you know? Well, that's kind
1: of what it feels like.
0: <laughs>
1: anyway. Um, um, Yeah, the other big thing is an overarching plot and theme about these movies is the love triangle between Katniss, Peta, and Gale. Both of them are from her district. P- Gale is the one that she was kind of in love with, who like she grew up with and who cares for her family and stuff and pita is the one that she has to go through the traumatic experience with and has to have a at times very fake relationship with for the sake of the viewers and the capital and is forced to and so there's in the books and in the movies a constant pull and push between these two uh i hate them both in this movie i think she should end up with neither
0: yeah, I, I would I would argue that one big through line I'm seeing in uh, the Francis Lars filmography is that he doesn't do love well. It's not one of his strengths.
1: No, it's not. And I also, I, uh, Josh Hutcherson is PETA and I think he's a better actor than Liam Hemsworth. I think Liam Hemsworth's character is also terribly written. But I think there's just something so strong about Jennifer Lawrence and her character on the page that having her have to like choose between these two fucking idiots, the people that are certainly below her, even if there is trauma involved in all of that. I just kind of hate that at the end of this giant saga, she kind of just ends up being torn between two guys and having to settle for one of them. That's also a thing. She's a little bit more active in this book, in in this movie. In the book, she like gets knocked out and misses the entire ending climax, which yeah, is terrible. That wouldn't have worked as well. <laughs> um, I also think this movie uh, smooths over. In the books, it is a little bit more apparent that Gale is these uh, more directly tied into the bombing that kills Katniss's sister. No,
0: I, I think it was pretty clear in this.
1: Okay, yeah. I feel like the book just laid it out even more specifically. Like, I'm sure there were more order. words
0: explaining yeah. it, but yeah, no, I, I thought this was pretty clear.
1: Hmm. <laughs> is... But yeah, so yeah. I end up... It's a better movie than The Mockingjay Part 1, but it's still a very disappointing end to a great two movies. Well, it's like...
0: You know, and to talk again about Battle Royale, like if you're if you're looking at the Battle Royale, because I admittedly I've never seen the second Battle Royale movie, but I know what happens in it. Um, it, it. I read a bunch of bad reviews, and I it, it just had to look up. Um, but the whole thing with Battle Royale is in the in the first movie, you've got the the Battle Royale right with the decent yeah. character development. Uh, you know, and then at the end, they take out the Game Master. That's the that that's the purpose of the movie. That's the end of it. And then the second movie becomes previous members of Battle Royale trying to take down the government that made them go in the first place. And everyone loves Battle Royale, and everyone hates Battle Royale too. Because the interesting part is Battle Royale, and you still get that, like, you know, satisfying ending within the context of the original thing. Hunger Games fleshed out across four books. You get two books of that Battle Royale and then, uh, not four books, three books, but you get rid them in. And then the final two movies, th- third book, whatever, they remove you from that Battle Royale, right? The Hunger Games are no longer a part of it. There's a line in the fourth movie where they're like, welcome to the 76th Hunger Games. But like, it's not the Hunger Games, right? It's, it's you... raiding a a castle like it's cool I'm glad you're doing something as opposed to just making propaganda films like in the fucking third one but like yeah I I, it's definitely less than what you want as an audience member you're obviously going to be more interested in what the series is designed to be and what you like in it so yeah I mean I I think ultimately the the fourth movie ends up being passable because I do think it it ends the the story and i think it ends the story in a as far as i'm concerned from a character standpoint a relatively satisfying way all things considered though it does go full lord of the rings and has like five fucking endings at the end of it and it's just like end okay we get it you don't have to, we don't have to yeah. talk to your kid a third time like come on um but uh
1: yeah it's definitely not nearly as good as the first two yeah i, I just realized we haven't even mentioned donald sutherland at all during this he's a major character he plays the big bad i think he's good i think his relationship with katniss both in person when he's directly controlling her and their opposition through propaganda and through different tactical moves during the rebellion I i will say that is a strength of this movie because their direct conflict is always present i think yeah but my question for you, no, I mean, Nick, is—I
0: think Don Sutherland, Sutherland's other one's great. He's great in this.
1: My question for you is: we, We've gone through three books and four movies. Who wins this franchise for you?
0: Um, I'd say. Uh, oh, I mean, I mean, I think Jennifer Lawrence is the the best. I would say her career went the best route. I think that that she was the the strongest element of this for sure. Um yeah I think that's I mean I, I don't I, I don't think you can make an argument for anybody else from I'm, a reasonable standpoint. I'm going to make an like, argument I think for the better else. question is who besides Jennifer Lawrence <laughs>
1: I think Stanley Tucci's name needs to be in there. I think he is present in all four of them. I think he, he, he's not given a ton of time. I believe particularly in the fourth one. Um but I think he just kills it and brings it in every scene. And I definitely think this introduced a whole new wave of moviegoers to Stanley Tucci, and I want to say that this has certainly helped his career in mainstream Hollywood.
0: I will. Uh, Stanley is up there for me uh, as a non Jennifer Lawrence, and then uh, the other one I would also add would, was, and I was sort of getting into this earlier, but Woody Harrelson. Like, obviously, Woody Harrelson's, you know, we've got a prolific career, and he's, he's wonderful, and I, I, I love him in a lot of stuff. But it, it what always interests me is there's something. I'll see Woody Harrelson pop up in a movie and I will chuckle when he arrives because I'm like, ah, oh, he's doing this, I guess. And then, like, he'll always give a really good nuanced performance and I'm always like, yeah, that's right. I forgot. He's good in, like, everything.
1: <laughs> yeah. So we got one movie left. Uh, he follows up his Hunger Games success with 2018's Red Sparrow, a candidate for movies that don't exist particularly in the subsection of Jennifer Lawrence movies that don't exist, because she's got a couple herself. Uh, Do you know anything about this movie, Nick? No. It's directed by Francis Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence is in it. Uh, So, this is a spy movie set in modern times. Jennifer Lawrence is a Russian ballerina who has her leg broken, So her uncle forces her to basically enlist in a KGB spy school that specializes in sexpionage. Uh, What? I hate, yeah, I hate this movie. It's really gross. Um, So it's, it's graphic both in its sex and its violence, which can work. I don't think it works here a lot of the decisions, shockingly, I, I just, I wrote down shockingly icky for modern day, not only for a movie set in modern day, but for a modern day production. I think there's a lot of questionable moral choices here. Uh, Cause basically the first act is a sex school for spies. And then the second act, she graduates from the sex school and gets her first mission. And it's a really really boring plotty her having to maybe seduce an American spy but then working with the American spy and then getting sent back to Russia and then the third act becomes a John Le Carr ripoff and it's fine because I like John Le Carr movies and it gives you everything you want there but they were trying to do a uh, like an atomic blonde type aesthetic and I think they just missed the mark entirely yeah that sounds bad I don't want to watch that no it's really bad and I have to say like i you know I think Jennifer Lawrence is good because she's generally good in whatever she does I don't know why she chose to do this I mean she has to do a lot of nude scenes a lot of sex scenes and a lot of it is very uncomfortable it's supposed to be uncomfortable I'm sure that's what the filmmaker was going for but I don't know, in today's day and age, I was just kind of like, no, this seems, like, really bad. You know, she gets...
0: Yeah, and it's not like it's old, you know, it's from, t- like, two, two, three years ago, right?
1: I'm talking about multiple attempted rapes, um, a, a lot of forced sex, a lot of, uh, you know, sex to advance a position in the spy game, which is also icky in itself and and then the I mean, mechanics, those are all
0: things that are also rape right
1: like oh <laughs> not for sex like someone saying you have to go have sex with this poor person and then i'm going to have sex with you so i can advance my position of power in this spy game so that's what that's what i meant by the three different It's
0: rape adjacent
1: you know <laughs> no it, it's just rape and rape adjacent um and there's also a lot of scenes of like her getting tortured by the KGB, just punching women left and right in this movie. Uh, I, I just I hated it. I I didn't see the purpose of this graphic, both in its violence and its sex.
0: Did you look into it all, like why he, why it was made or what was like the?
1: It's another adaptation from a book. Uh, I know that they, in adapting it to the movie, they narrowed the character perspective to really make jennifer lawrence's character the lead because you've also got uh basically jeremy irons and kieran hines are the two guys up in the russian government you've got her uncle who's a creepy russian character actor and then the american spy is played by jason biggs american pie you're talking about american pie now right yes cool joel edgerton plays nate nash The American spy. That that guy who's in that thing. And so you got your overarching plot is Joel Edgerton is a American spy who's working with a high level Russian spy. And the Russian government wants to figure out who their who the traitor in their midst is. So they enlist Jennifer Lawrence to seduce him and get the information out. And then they throw in a big subplot that is mary louise parker is a um, head of staff for a u.s senator who's going to sell secrets and jennifer lawrence gets those secrets for the russian government but also works with joel edgerton to expose mary louise parker so it's just like you get really bogged down in spy shit in the middle and it's not fun spy shit and then the third act is how is it all going to resolve we're going to find out who that big bad is I've only mentioned a couple characters, so you can guess there's really one of two options that's going to go there, and it's the one that you think it is. I, I just... I think it is a poor John Le esque spy movie, and if you're a big fan of John Le Car movies, you're probably going to get totally turned off by the first act in particular of all the sexpionage stuff, which, Nick, is apparently, like, a kind of real thing. It's debated in circles, but it's thought that, like... The Russian government did kind of do some stuff like this for a time. Just take attractive members of the army and, like, train them how to sleep with people for secrets and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It sounds bad. So it's not like there's a an implausibility factor. It's just like, it, I think anyone who likes the classic John LaCarre stuff is going to be turned off by the graphic violence and the graphic sex. Anyone who is into that is going to get totally fucking bored by the second and third act. And I, yeah. I, I leave asking, who is it for? Because it's not for Jennifer Lawrence fans. They are generally, you know, she still has a young adult fan base. I think that she's certainly stretched herself with dramatic roles and things like that. But, like, you know, Jennifer Lawrence in a spy movie called Red Sparrow, oh, turns out it's hard R. So I don't know what you're doing right. there. I don't think it's bringing anything stylistically that is better than tinker taylor soldier spy or any of those stuffy british spy films the spy who came in from the Cold. well it's all but that there's more penetration stuff. you know it's a- there's more penetration but then it also doesn't have like the crazy action sequences or the hyper visual stylistic choices like an atomic blonde right so that's where i end with it i don't think red sparrow is particularly good i can't recommend anyone watch it uh I hope he goes on to better things. And the good news is, I mean, Francis Lawrence has some big projects lined up. Um, so he is an EP on three TV shows, I believe uh, are all for Apple TV Kings, Touch, and C. C is the one that they were hoping Apple TV was going to be like their Game of Thrones, but it never took off. Um, it was starring Jason Momoa. And I guess he parlayed that relationship into his next movie, which is in active pre-production right now. It's called Sleepland or Slumberland. And it is a Jason Momoa vehicle outside of the Aquaman universe. So, like, I do think he has good things on on the horizon. And I hope he continues to work. I just... It's just the last one that was kind of a sour taste in my mouth. Maybe the last two. Yeah. But let's wrap it up. Yeah, let's wrap it up
0: and see. Let's go top, bottom, hidden gem. And then uh, I would cut it off because
1: I need to eat some food. This could be really easy for me. Top is absolutely Hunger Games two, Catching Fire. Yeah, I'm going to agree. I have to
0: agree. I can't. I I can't say anything else. So, I hate when we agree. It's so lame. But like, yeah, it is Hunger Games two for sure. Best well, movies, man.
1: As a man who has made his career directing adaptations from books, I think it is not only the best adaptation, but also just the best movie as a whole. Yeah. I'm with you. My worst, I'm gonna say Red Sparrow, because as a standalone film, it just entirely fails. At least with Mockingjay Part 1, he redeems himself a little bit with Mockingjay Part 2, and I directly know that the source material is garbage in Mockingjay, so I give him that extra sympathy point. So I'm gonna go Red Sparrow, worst. Yeah, I gotta
0: go Hunger Games 3. I think it's objectively the worst of the things he's done there's i have got stronger opinions about several of his other movies and that, that dwell in the negative areas but like in terms of the closest thing to a nothing movie he's made for me it's it's hunger games three
1: cool and uh my hidden gem is definitely going to be constantine i think especially in the comic book superhero juggernaut world we live in now it's definitely one that's under viewed and overlooked and i also think that it's got enough world building and fun attributes and rules and lore that you could watch it and get something out of it
0: so for my hidden gem uh i'm going to say that okay go music video Um, no, actually, honestly, I I do want to say, like, for Hidden Gems for him, I don't think he's got a ton of Hidden Gems as far as I'm concerned. I think most of them are pretty well known, and the ones that, uh, are not as known, uh, you, you can skip. But, uh, if you were to do anything for this filmmaker, I would say spend some time just watching some of his old music videos. I did a few, I watched a few while prepping for this, and, like... It's just it's amazing the different worlds he's created in and, you know, created such some some really iconic imagery to go with. You're talking a solid 15 years of music. It's like I, I'd love if someone strung together like a super cut of things he did music video wise. I'm not going to. But like I do want to give him a lot more credit as a music video director because I don't get to do that very often
1: i guess you could say that is very reflective of his filmography because each of these movies has a very distinctly different world that it's playing in there might be some common attributes but like for the most part he is crafting a visual world that is unique to the story and they are varied Oh yeah, the the biggest thing I learned about him is
0: what a fantastic visual storyteller he is. Like, I think that he struggles with romance. I think he sometimes struggles with story, but like at the same time if you're watching uh if, if you're watching a movie directed by Francis Lawrence, it's going to be a visually interesting movie unless it's Hunger, Hunger Games Game 3. part
1: 3. Yeah, Mockingjay part 1. Yeah. 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 And I have to say um, Mockingjay part when, 1, a very drastic stylistic world difference than the first two Hunger Games it's just an ugly one.
0: Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, that's that's it for Francis Lawrence. Uh, it's been a fun ride there. Uh, join us next time when we cover uh, the r- man who directed the Russian sequel to American Pie, Russian Pie. Um, sounds great. Um, uh, it's the same. It's the same movie, but with a Russian accent.
1: He had six with pie. I heard they even got some 41 to do the soundtrack, but sing with Russian accents. Is that true? I mean, there's there's not much there's
0: not much else that they're doing these days anyway, right? You know, they've been it's been all downhill since the Hell song. Um,
1: all right. So again, uh, my name is Zachary Antonio.
0: I'm Nick Duriso.
1: Please rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of stuff, so we know you love us.
0: Yeah, check us out on Letterboxd, or in Zach's case, Twitter, or in my case, not Twitter.
1: Yeah, and everyone have a great, safe week, dear listener. Okay,
0: bye. Love you.